When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jewish authorities, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the gospel of the Lord. I love the church calendar. I really do. No surprising that I'm a church geek. But I love that the big and bold thing that happens on Easter, the church says, hey, that is way too important to condense down to just one day. We're going to celebrate it for a whole season. Easter tide, 50 days, seven weekends, all pure celebration mode. Anyone remember what the big climactic end to the Easter season is? What's the next big festival coming up? Any other church geeks here tonight? Starts with a P. A Pentecost. Yes, exactly. And that is the day that the Holy Spirit comes down. So this whole season of Easter, it's not just about celebration. It's also about preparation, right, for this passing off of the torch. As the Holy Spirit comes down, as Jesus is leaving, he says to us, now that I'm gone, Guess what is going to be the main primary way that God works and moves in this world? You. You. So all of Easter season, we are getting ready for that exciting but kind of scary charge. What does it look like? To be the door, to be the channel through which God gets things done in this world. So because of that, in the season of Easter every year, we always look at the book of Acts. Do you guys know the book of Acts? It's kind of considered like a sequel to the Gospel of Luke, and it is also that kind of torch-carrying idea. It's those first followers of Jesus right after he dies trying to figure out how do we carry on God's work now that Jesus is no longer with us. So we are reading from Acts. So our reading from today is from Acts 11, and Acts 11 is like this big, um, it's like a big turning point in the book of Acts. Because at this point in the church, here's what's happening. To this point, Christianity, if you can call it that even yet, the Jesus movement, has been entirely a sub-movement within Judaism. So everybody who's a follower of Jesus, they're all Jewish, right? But what's happening now, as this is starting to spread, people who are not Jewish, they want to be part of it too. So the big debate of the day is, if they want to follow Jesus... Do they have to become Jewish? Do they have to get circumcised? Do they have to keep kosher in their food that they eat? Do they have to observe Jewish holidays? And so this reading from Acts, this is Peter describing how he came to be convinced, no, they do not. And the thing that changes Peter's mind is this really powerful encounter that he has with a guy named Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is a general in the Roman army. That's a very important detail. Do you know why? Because that means that Cornelius and Peter, they're not just like from different cultural groups. They're from diametrically opposed cultural groups, right? The people that Cornelius is with, they are the ones who are oppressing Peter and the people that he's with. So these are like basically enemies, right? 
But God is up to something. Both Cornelius and Peter, they both had some kind of visions. So Peter has this vision of all of these animals coming down. They're all animals that in Judaism would be considered unclean. You would never eat them. And Peter has this vision of God saying, no, they're okay. And Cornelius, guess what Cornelius' vision is? His vision is, you need to go find this guy named Peter. So that's what happens. These six Gentiles, that's what the Bible calls people who are not Jewish, they show up at Peter's door and they ask him to come to Cornelius. And amazingly, what does Peter say? Yeah, okay, okay, I'll go. So Peter goes and, and you can, they meet, he goes to Cornelius' house and they, he walks in and you can almost like feel the awkwardness and the tension in the air as they meet from such different places. And then Cornelius says, really simply, it is good of you to come. It is good of you to come. And that seems to be enough to break the ice. And the two men, they share their stories of these visions, wondering what God's doing on in their life, what God's making happen in their life. So they share this together. They get to know each other. And in the end, Peter ends up baptizing Cornelius along with his entire household. So it's an incredible example of God's boundary-breaking, earth-shattering love. But you know what's really interesting, the most interesting part about this story to me? It's, okay, well, let's think about Acts. When we think about the story of Acts, we generally think of it as this book about God's good news spreading wider and wider, right? Like First Peter and Paul, they're going out, they're talking about Jesus to people who haven't heard, and we think of it as like, them bringing light to places that are dark and spreading the light. But when you look at this story of Peter and Cornelius, God doesn't show up with Peter. God is already there. So God's already been working in both of them with angels and visions and who knows what else. And in the story itself that we hear, the Holy Spirit of God, it doesn't show up with Peter when Peter arrives, no. It's after these two men have met one another, shared their stories, that's when the Spirit shows up. That's when there's this big, big God moment. Peter doesn't bring God there. God was already there. And that realization that God is already there, that makes all the difference, right, with how we live. When we think about doing God's work, if we think about it as going out to a place and trusting that God is already there, then doing God's work is like all of us working together, making God's love real. Without it, without it, it's us trying to be a savior for a world that already has one. And without it, even the best of intentions can go horribly wrong and lead to incredibly bad unintended consequences. So, yesterday, Friday, the 65th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education decision. Right? Unanimous Supreme Court decision 1954 rules segregation in schooling unconstitutional. Huge victory, one of the most famous decisions in American legal history, right? So we think about that decision, 
should have been this incredible revolution of our education system. We look at it 65 years later. We botched it. We botched it big time. Our public schools today, as segregated as they were in 1960. Educational outcomes, disparity between black and white students, higher than it has ever been in any point in history, including in the pre-Brown era. How did this happen? Our education system is so complicated. I'm not an educator. A million possible answers to that question. But one interesting thing that several black educators who were teaching during the time of Brown have started to point out to us, which is, look at the decision written by the courts in Brown and notice the difference between the plaintiffs who brought the case and the justices who decided the case in how they explain the rationale for integrating schools. The justices said it is unfair to separate black students and white students because you are causing harm to the black students by forcing them into an inferior education system. That's not what the plaintiffs were saying at all. So Oliver and Leola Brown, they're the first ones named in the case, the first plaintiffs. They had no problems at all with the education that their seven-year-old was receiving at Monroe, her all-black school. Actually, so that's their daughter, Linda. Leola Brown, she went to Monroe herself. And she was interviewed about it, and she said, yeah, the education at Monroe was fantastic. The teachers were fantastic. We had no bones to pick with the education there. We just thought that the school board shouldn't be telling us where we can and can't send our daughter to school, especially if the only reason they can come up with is the color of her skin. But the court said, no, no, no. Your daughter is being harmed by an inferior school system. It must be because the students there are black and the teachers there are black and the administrators are black. So we are going to save your children by taking them out of that school and putting them in a white school. And we, like, how many of you have learned about this case? Like all of us, right? And we celebrate this as this victory. And it was this uh, hallmark of the civil rights movement. And we honor the brave students, like if you've heard of Ruby Bridges, who were some of those first ones to integrate into those schools. But guess what was happening at the same time as that integration of students was slowly happening? Something very different was happening with the teachers. And as school districts across the country, one by one, complied with the decision, they did it by closing the black schools, sending all the students to the white schools. And guess what happened to the black teachers and administrators? Most of them lost their jobs. Before Brown, 82,000 black teachers in America. 10 years later, half that. And the number has never recovered since then. And then we look at some of the stats that we know today about what a difference it makes for a black student to have a black teacher. One study found even one, if a black student has even one black teacher between grades three and five, their high school dropout rate went down by 39%. Like it makes a huge difference, right? And you just wonder what would have happened if the court had decided to integrate the teachers first instead of the students.
what would have happened if the court had realized that there was nothing wrong with the black schools? What would have happened if all of us had realized that segregation hurts white students as much as it hurts the black students because we're just all always better together? White students needed the integration as much as black students did. Peter needed Cornelius just as much as Cornelius needed Peter. I mean, Cornelius clearly needs Peter, right, to come to him, to share these stories, to baptize him, to welcome him into God's family. But Peter needs Cornelius too. Because Cornelius is the one who teaches Peter that God's love is for everyone. Cornelius is the one who teaches Peter just how wrong he had been, just how much he had underestimated the sheer size and scope of God's love for all of us, right? And this is true for us in our life, right? You think about our partners, our partners in El Salvador, in Milwaukee, partners in recovery. We need them just as much as they need us. So... All good things to think about as we get ready for Pentecost and think about what does it mean to be the church and what does it mean to be followers of Jesus and what does it mean to live in such a way that by even just our actions, people can already tell that we are a person of faith. All good things to think about, but as we do, may God save us from thinking that we need to save anybody else. May God help us to see that helping is always a two-way street, always flows both ways. May God remind us that anywhere we go, God is already there. And then give us the courage to see how we can jump in and be part of that. And anytime that we forget that, may God reach down, pluck us up from the center of our own universe, and plop us down somewhere where we can get swept up in this wide expansive love that moves us and is moved by us, a love with no limits. Amen.